Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 269, Why Debate Theology? This episode of the Trinity's podcast consists of a short, informal talk I gave in the concurrent sessions at Converge. Converge was a first-ever meeting of different biblical Unitarian groups. It was held at Hiram College in Ohio in August of 2019. Everyone had a wonderful time. It was very encouraging. It was a time to make new connections. It was even better than its organizers had hoped for. I hope that this kind of meeting can happen regularly. I discuss biblical precedents for debating, why I do it, some upsides and some downsides of debating. I just wanted to talk a little bit about debating, and the bottom line is I think there need to be more theological debates. And by debates, I mean stand-up, knock-down, hour-and-a-half, two-hour-and-a-half long formal debates. I'm not primarily talking about getting into arguments on Facebook, although a lot of the things I say will be applicable to that. So if that's your main interest, I hope it'll be a little bit helpful to you. I've debated, I don't know, maybe 10 times. Three of them are on YouTube. One is me debating my atheist professor friend about the existence of God. That's a pretty good debate, I think. That's a pretty good video. And then I debated Michael Brown about the Trinity, whether the Bible uh, supports the Trinity. And then most recently, I debated this evangelical apologist named Chris Date about whether or not the Bible supports the deity of Christ. So I just wanted to share some ideas and some lessons that I've learned. And I think the first thing to get clear about is the difference between an argument and a quarrel. Some people just debates turn them off because they just associate it with ruined Thanksgiving dinners. And that one loud uncle that just has to bring up politics, even though nobody wants to hear his opinions about that subject and just keeps, you know, coming at you, especially after he's had two drinks or more. And, um, you know, an argument is a mutual search for the truth. My one professor friend uh, who's an atheist, I've debated the existence of God with him three times, and we are better friends than before. Because we're not up there insulting each other, kicking each other in the shins, so to speak. We're up there having a friendly wrestling match and trying to refute one another, and then we go have beer afterwards. You know, then it's up to the audience to decide, is this going to move me? Is this going to make, you know, I hope it makes them reconsider believing in God, because I think it makes more sense than naturalism. Uh, so anyway, quarreling is just trying to dominate somebody or bug somebody, and it's just irritating, and nobody likes a quarreler. Debating is having a rational argument. It's a mutual search for the truth, and it doesn't violate people's dignity or free will. You're giving them reasons. You're not punching them in the face. You're saying, here, you think this, right? Well, because you already think this, you should also think that, because these things imply these conclusions. Now, debates between Unitarians and non-Unitarians, or between Trinitarians and Unitarians, are difficult. And one thing that makes them difficult is they have two just totally different paradigms that they bring to the Bible when they read the Bible. They're just they're looking at it completely different ways, just backwards from one another. They can't even understand half the time what the other person thinks. It just seems crazy to them. Like it seems perverted to them. Like, why can't you see the Trinity's there? Everybody knows that, right? And the Unitarian person's thinking the same thing. 
it takes a lot of work. You have to figure out what it is you have in common, what you can acknowledge as facts that both of you can acknowledge, and somehow try to move the person from those facts that they already agree to, those truths they already agree with, to where you want to bring them. That's the best way, not just, well, I think this. Yeah, well, I think that. Okay, why do we just do this? That just now, we just, now we're just both mad and we wasted an hour. Yeah, debating done right is more worthwhile than that. Part of the reason people don't like debates is they think presidential debates. I mean, like they're intellectually worthless, right? They're heavily coached PR events. You've got a guy that told you what color suit to wear, what kind of makeup to put on, and you know what phrases people tickle people's ears most effectively. And there's just it's really not very much like an, an actual intellectual argument at all. They're just who can get who can make the best impression on camera, who can get the most words in, who can mock the other one in a way that gets quoted on the news. If the whole thing's really stupid, like if you watch old ones, Kennedy versus Nixon or Lincoln versus Douglas, if you read these, they, they're actual debates. That's more like what I'm talking about. High school debates are closer to what I'm talking about, like debating club in high school. Although they do put a little bit of an emphasis on fast talking and just sort of trying to make a strong impression. Just, you know, what a philosopher like me would call just mere rhetoric rather than on powerful arguments or, or convincing reasons. But um, they are trying to persuade. The kind of thing I'm talking about is really a simplified form of medieval disputations, where these two professors would get up in this very rigid format and try to make a case for their position and refute the other guy's case for their position. And debates as we know them in theology now are kind of what professors do. That's a simplified form of that. And I think they're great. I totally believe in them. I think there needs to be more, but they do need to be done well. And why they're great is they show that you value the truth, but they also properly respect the other person. You're not just going to mock them into agreement or try to pull a power move or act like you have a degree and they don't, or you quoted more Greek words than they did. You're actually trying to give them real reasons to agree with your position. And of course, it's not really about the other guy on stage. It's about the people listening. It's for their benefit. It's a performance in a sense for their benefit. And it kind of suckers people in, you know, people like a fight. They want to see their guy win. Okay. We all like a little drama once in a while, as long as it doesn't involve us and our Thanksgiving dinner. So people will tune in, you know, hoping to see their person triumph, whatever. But it's a great tradition because a lot of those people on the other side have never heard someone make an hour-long case for the other side. They think you just must be a dope if you're a Unitarian. They don't believe things they can't fully explain. That's what's going on, right? They have no idea what we think and why. And because they came to see Mr. Heretic get his butt kicked, they're going to actually hear something interesting. Now, some of them will just say, what a, what a jerk, what a fool. They don't really listening, but some of them are more serious than that. And if you have a good points, they will hear your good points and they will think about them later. And if their guy is kind of lame and kind of shallow, they will, hmm, he, he didn't do very well. That wasn't a very good case. Well, what, what should he have said? I don't know, you know? So hopefully they go away and think about it more. The very format of it equalizes the two parties. Maybe one of them is a PhD at some prestigious research university, 
normally in most contexts, they would be like, you just shut up and listen to him. He'll tell you what to think. Or maybe he's famous or has written some books or something. But okay, fine. But anyway, when you're debating, you both have to stand there and you have to listen to the other guy make a full case. And you need to supposedly address his case and refute it and make a stronger case. And then they're going to question you at the end. And you have to submit the questions. And you can't say, just trust me. And if you do, you will look, you will look silly. So the format is a really great thing. It cancels out differences of prestige and power. And in this particular case, uh, a lot of people really have no idea what like traditional views are about incarnation. They don't know what it is, but it's, it's super important. Same with the Trinity, even more so. And maybe that person's going to hear a debate and say, well, gee, what is it exactly we're defending anyway? Is it actually the most important thing in the world? Because actually, it's kind of harder to get out of Scripture than I've been assuming. Now, you say, does it ever change anybody's mind? Uh, look, it's a big mixed bag. You know, people are nuts. There's the truth seeker who it will be very helpful to because they will know what resources to look at, what kind of arguments to think about. They will know in these debates what kind of Bible passages to go back and restudy. Um, then there's the fanboy. He just wants to see his guy win. It's not going to help him. It's bad for him. He's wasting his time. He should be doing something else with his time probably because if that's all he's there for, showing up hoping to see somebody get beat up is really not a good use of your time. Um, but there's a lot of people that, you know, they don't, they don't really know what they think about it. And then there are people who are on what I think is the right side, and I think debates encourage them. So I wanted to talk just a little bit about one scriptural precedent for debating. And this is the example of Apollos in Acts chapter 18. So in verse 24, it says, Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, now, you might say, so what? That doesn't mean anything to me. Well, if you read a whole lot about the ancient world, you know, Alexandria was a center of Hellenistic learning, of Greek language learning and literature and philosophy and medicine and all areas of human knowledge. So, just that he was an Alexandrian and he turns out to be a learned, it says, or eloquent man, well-versed in scripture. He's, he's an educated guy, okay? It says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord at and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. By the way, that tells you he wasn't a know-it-all. He realized he didn't know some things. He was one of these kind of people that just learns more and more. And they don't get to a certain level and just say, aha, now I've arrived and I know everything. Okay, so it says... When he wished to cross over to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those who through grace had become believers, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. So, it doesn't say particularly that he was convincing lots of Jews to become Christians. Maybe he did. But what it praises him for there in Luke's little account is that he encouraged the believers. And the way he encouraged them was by taking on their Goliath on the battlefield, so to speak, the battlefield of argument, and hitting them right in the forehead with a rock, but just reasons, not real rocks, okay? Yeah, I mean, it's helpful if you're wavering in your own view to see it defended at length by someone who kind of knows what they're talking about against someone 
who's educated on the other side and like, oh, oh yeah, my view does hold up. And so that's one of the main reasons I do it, you know, really to encourage Unitarian Christians. And there are a lot of powerful and impressive and learned people who think the Trinity and the deity of Christ just really shouldn't be discussed because everybody knows these are obviously like the very core of Christianity, like the obviously most important parts. And they'll tell you that, and they'll scoff at you, and they'll mock you if you want to debate them. And they'll call you heretic and worse things. And, uh, you know, that really stings when it's somebody in a, you could say, a, a superior social position to you. And it's helpful when you know that actually, you know, my view can be defended just as well as yours, actually better, I think. So, this business of doing formal debates, it's a weird business. It's not for everybody. And in a minute, I'll tell you some downsides of it and some problems with it. But I do think it's important just to encourage people and show that the position is defensible and should be thought about. We don't really hear much more about this Apollos guy, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly brings him up. And he brings him up in the context of, don't say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, I'm of Paul, and so on. So, what that tells you is apparently Apollos was a fairly impressive guy. And he was considered an important leader, at least by some people. Some people liked him so much, like they liked him more than Paul, and uh, were going to be sectarian or factionalized by that like for him. So, you know, he must have he must have done well at it. It must have proven useful. Did it convert Jews? It, I assume it probably did sometimes, but it also kind of served a protective function for the, the Jesus movement. So, that's like a pretty direct example in the New Testament of this type of debating. It's not necessarily formal debating exactly as we do it, but it's arguing in public over an important topic. It's for convincing people, probably not the guy you're arguing with, but it's for convincing people who are listening and encouraging those who already believe. Other examples, here's an example, Jesus in the entire book of John. He gets into these big, long arguments. Have you ever seen the Gospel of John movie? That one that's just like, it's the text of the good news translation, every last word, like it's three hours long. It's really good, actually, because they didn't like edit any love stories in like the Ten Commandments or, you know, song and dance numbers, or it's just like, here is everything John says, all three hours of it. And on the level of a movie, it's not the easiest thing to watch. But it's interesting because this Jesus is not like this kind of wandering hippie that pops out these Zen koans and these proverbs and just, you know, talks about the flowers and the grass and says pretty sounding greeting card sentiments, you know, how people superficially misread like the Sermon on the Mount. This guy gets into these arguments that go on for like a whole chapter and he seems to be really opinionated. And I'm, I'm sure he was really opinionated because he knew what God had revealed to him. He knew his mission, he knew his message, he knew his message came from God, and he wasn't afraid to tell you how wrong you are. And, you know, as a philosopher, I analyzed one of his arguments in John chapter 10 about, uh, you know, you're saying you're God, and he ends up correcting them saying he's only God's son. But he, he gives a brilliant argument. You guys think that you can call gods people to whom the word of God came. I'm the Messiah, I'm greater than those guys. It can't be blasphemy if, if the, you can call those guys gods who aren't as great as me. It can't be blasphemy to call me by this lesser title, son of God. Right, it can't. It's an irrefutable argument. 
And so he's refuting them in public and making them mad. You know, they, they can't come up with good answers to these things. So according to John, and you know, I make the traditional assumption that it's really by John. I think that's why it's, he so boldly departs from the first three earlier gospels. I think he remembered, you know, the gist of some of these arguments and that's why he, he put it that way. When the Trantys podcast returns, I give an even broader precedent for the practice of debating. Here's an even broader example, just Jewish culture. They argue. They quarrel sometimes, yeah, but they also argue and, you know, they realize they still love each other afterwards. I grew up in more like a Northern European passive-aggressive family that just sort of seethed with resentment most of the time. (laughs) And so... When I went to college and in my first year, I took a philosophy class. I was like, wait, this is great. We get to argue about everything. I can like argue with the professor and he likes it. You know, like, what is this? This is great. You know, and um, I had two Jewish colleagues for 18 years as a professor who I loved. And everybody I debated was a Jew until the previous one that I just did with Chris Date. (laughs) It was my atheist Jewish colleagues and then Michael Brown, the Jewish Christian. Anyway, Jews, they have a culture built around arguing. The traditional Talmudic instruction involves a lot of arguing. And, you know, they, they have a joke about that. They got a lot of good jokes, but they got a joke about this. It's uh, two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> I guess one of them has an extra. Uh, so, do you even know what the Talmud is? I don't think most Christians do, but it's a very strange book. It's a super commentary. The Mishnah is a commentary on the books of Moses. And then the Talmud comes along and is arguing about the Mishnah. It's kind of like a old school internet bulletin board where there's all these people commenting. And you're not even sure who most of them are. So the Talmud's really hard to read. It's just, it's punishing to read. Every page just kills you because you don't know who's talking and what they're really arguing about half the time. But it's interesting that they built the arguments into their commentaries, and they also see the books of the Bible as arguing with each other, which is interesting. Is it just a personality contest? Look, it depends on the listener. Personality is is always a help if you have any. And some people just, you know, I just like that guy. I don't like that guy. Whatever. Okay. But if you're serious about truth, you have to be serious about the arguments and the evidence that's being discussed. If you're going to go to a debate, you have to drink your caffeine before and bring your notebook and write a bunch of stuff down and then try to ask devastating questions in in the Q&A portion and see how you do. Downsides of these kind of debates, it honestly, it takes months of preparation. Like if the person has written on the topic, you really need to go read it. Otherwise, you're wasting people's time. You're not gonna. You're not gonna even understand what they're saying. It's like when I debated Michael Brown. I read all of his relevant stuff. I watched a bunch of his debates. Uh, it's not something you just jump into because you're feeling feisty, like maybe you do when you Facebook argue. 
it's nerve wracking. In my experience, it's not nerve wracking when you're getting up to do it because you've been preparing for it by months. You're like, let's just get this over with already. Like I'm not nervous when I'm up there and about to do it. But like beforehand, like there's these little moments of terror, like, oh no, I'm going to get up and people and argue about this. Like, what am I doing? You know? So it's not for everybody. You might have to be the kind of person who cares a little bit less about what people think about you for this and for other reasons. If you are a biblical Unitarian and you participate in debates, you will be an object of ridicule online. You will be a stupid jerk, an incompetent fool, a total idiot, somebody that doesn't know the Bible, someone whose Greek knowledge is grossly inadequate and is just a total loser. And who would even listen to that guy? Right. It's going to be the fanboys who just can't stand non Trinitarians and just. You you disgust them, you know, and they're going to go on. They're going to immediately go online the second the debate's 10 minutes into it. And they're going to say how much you suck. Pardon my language. That's just how it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, look, that's an ad hominem. It's an attack against the person, not attack, an attack against the position. You know, what if I'm a dummy and my Greek is terrible? You know, what does that have to do with what's being argued about? Nothing. But you know, a shocking number of people think that a main part of apologetics is to heap contempt on the heretics. They think that's a helpful thing. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to get kicked hard and you just have to, that's just part of the deal, you know. In the YouTube age, if it gets put on YouTube, now it's also on your permanent record. And there will be jokers on there in the comments six months from now, you know, saying again, Either, oh, yeah, I really appreciate this. Thank you for this debate. Or you're dumb. Like, why don't you, why don't you know the obvious? Another bad thing about it, and this brings me to a, a few more scriptures, and then I'll, I'll stop and take questions, comments from you about anything related to this. You will be tempted to heap contempt on your opponent, especially if the opponent is doing it to you. And, uh, you know, you can't do that as a disciple. You're not supposed to. I try not to. I, I, I'm not always fully obedient in this regard because I'm kind of a sarcastic person in my flesh. I try not to, but, you know, Jesus says that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And I've been called a fool. And, right, it's not about the word fool exactly. It's about contempt. Contempt, it's basically like a, it's more than a dislike. It's like a settled hatred. Like you can't stand that person. The normal way you express contempt is by cussing. That's the main function of curse words is to express contemptuous thoughts. Now, if you're an apologist, you usually can't do that. Usually there are some guys out there, let me tell you, you can't cuss them out, but you know, you, you can talk about what a stupid idiot they are. I've actually said like, you, you're Christians, right? Like, because you follow Jesus and you do this, like, why don't you just say what's wrong with my argument instead of talking about what a dummy I am, supposedly? But, you know, I do sass back sometimes. <laughs> am I allowed to sass? Is that contempt? I don't know. Like I said, you know, they think that's their job. And there, there's even these guys, I don't know, they, they come at you like, like, mm, like, I'm going to put you in your place, you bad man, you know, and like, okay, man, whatever, like... <laughs> James talks about this, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
Not many of you should become teachers. You know, we, you can't bless God and curse a man or woman who's made in God's image and likeness with that same mouth. You kiss your mother with that mouth, you know. You praise God with that mouth, but you're calling this guy a blankety-blank idiot because he has different theology than you. So, yeah, it's not fun. There's, there's a lot of temptation there. Another bad thing about it is most of the people that are going to want to debate you, you should not debate them. I learned this the hard way on one of my podcast episodes when I had this guy, he was just totally uninformed about the subject. And I like point out that it was wrong. And he just went right on rolling. Like he didn't even phase him. Like, why am I doing this? A lot of would-be defenders of orthodoxy, they're very interested in the prestige and the social standing that comes with that. Because your average Christian is really terrified to say anything about the Trinity or incarnation or to raise those subjects. So along comes this 25-year-old white man who went to a Christian college, such as the earlier me, and uh, he thinks he knows everything, and he's going to correct everybody and set everybody straight. He doesn't even realize necessarily that he really just enjoys being the big man on campus and telling everybody everything about these important topics. Actually, he may only read other apologists, and he may be tragically uninformed about Christian history, Christian theology the actual primary sources that actual scholars study. You don't want to debate that guy. It's just aggravating. He's going to know the sorts of things he's supposed to say, but he's not actually going to have a position that you can interact with very much. There was two guys, uh, one of them privately challenged me to a debate, you know, and I, I sort of looked into who he was and I'm like, you oh, know, this guy seems kind of weird. He's not a scholar. I, I don't think this guy is somebody I want to debate. So I turned him down. Another guy had loudly publicly challenged me to debate. I know who he was. He's a big blowhard. Like he's like the drunk uncle who won't shut up and he just wants to dominate and is totally not a scholar and not good on these topics. And I was like, no, thanks. You know, I'm, I don't want to debate you. Then I found these two guys debated each other. And I looked at some of it. I'm like, oh man, I dodged a bullet there. I mean, <laughs> It's just like two blowhards blowing at each other. You know, it was not good. It was not a worthwhile exercise. So, yeah, they not everybody that thinks they're an expert is an expert. Most self-appointed apologists are not experts in anything. The people that makes the most sense to debate are people who are experts in something or who demonstrate by their behavior that they're truth seekers, that they're not just trying to dominate or show how awesome they are but they actually want to give good reasons. And when you have a point that they can't address, they'll go back and they'll, they'll think about it more and they'll try to come up with a better argument. Like that's, that's the kind of thing you want to look for. So, so yeah, to conclude, there need to be more debates like this. I have not seen a lot of good Trinitarian, Unitarian debates. I put one on my podcast that was pretty good uh, with Anthony Buzzard and a Trinitarian guy named Sanders. That was early 2000s. I really like the Sean Finnegan, Brant Bosserman debate, which was, I think, out on the Pacific Northwest 10 or more, about 10 years ago. That was very good. I like Sean. I like his work. He's a clear communicator and careful thinker. But there need to be more. So some of you, you know, you should think about doing that. And if you're not the kind of person that's ever going to do it, you should consider watching them and benefiting from, you know, it, it can help you understand the issues. It can improve your own confidence and so on. And some people, you know, honestly, they do end up changing their mind because of a debate. I've never seen a person who is so humble that they would just like repent on the spot. <laughs> it, it could happen, but given human nature, it's very, very unlikely. 
But what's more likely is they sit down and think about it and six or eight months or 16 months later, like they could change their mind. But yeah, it shows the truth is important. It shows that God made us as reasonable beings. It also shows that, you know, not all truth matters equally, but these are important truths. You know, there's a truth about how many phone numbers are in the Canton, Ohio phone book, but I don't think that's very important or worth arguing about. Truth about who the one God is and how to properly think about God's Messiah. These are really important. And whenever you debate in a godly way, you're publicly testifying to the importance of those things. So I'll stop there and, you know, we can talk about whatever you want questions, comments, war stories. When the Trinity's podcast returns, QA time. Priscilla, take away Apollos mm-hmm. to talk to him privately, as opposed to then he debates the Jews publicly. And, and I'm not saying one's right and wrong. How, how do you know the difference between when is it time to do things privately? When do you take matters to debate? Ooh, that's a hard general question to answer. I'm not sure I can give a general answer to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Use that as your uh, yeah. Of what you're dealing with there, there'd be no profit in embarrassing Apollos publicly after he just gave this great sermon, essentially, on Jesus Christ being the Messiah, and you really want to embarrass him publicly after that. There's almost baptism of Holy Spirit is actually goes beyond baptism of John. I mean, want to know about that, too. It's common sense on that one. I mean, you have to ask, like, would I want someone to treat me like this if I was mistaken? They probably wouldn't want, you know, embarrass me on my Facebook wall. They'd probably rather be private messaged or let's talk about it over coffee. I guess to do it publicly, you know, I guess you really have to have studied it very intensively for a long time so that you, what you're going to say is worth putting the permanent record and putting out in public like that. And what's the ultimate results, you know, with the with their dialogue learned, right? Yeah. As opposed to with the with the, probably wasn't for the Jews benefit as much as for the audience's benefit. hmm Yeah. It's maybe more defensive than offensive. Um I have a question about Facebook arguments. I want to hear what you have to I have something to say about it, but I want to hear what you have to say about it. Um, you know, context matters. So there are some groups, like there's a group for my Trinity's podcast where it is just sort of understood that people are going to argue with you and, uh, that we will also throw you out if you get to be a jerk about it. And other groups, you know, are just for sharing mutual interests. Like, you know, this is the macrame club or something, the basket weaving society. They don't want to hear you about your theology on their page, you know? No, I mean in the groups of debated specifically. Um, people vary how much, you know, and how much they can tolerate being contradicted and argued with. 
I don't take much offense to it, but I'm pretty thick skinned. And you have to realize when people are starting to get offended and you're just annoying them and everybody else. Some people actually have really good arguments, but they're not, maybe they don't have like enough emotional intelligence to figure out when it's just bothering somebody. What would you say about that? I I believe like in the 80-20 rule for almost everything. And so only 20% of the people are going to be bold enough to say something in the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the other 80 is going to read it. Yeah. So I speak to the 80%. And so my advice is to take the high road (laughs) and just state your case with as much logic as you can. Try to keep it short. If the other person says they need to disengage, don't mock them for running away like a big chicken. Can't do that. Yeah. Only one exclamation point per debate. Uh, do, you think, uh, do you think there's like a, maybe a way to develop a, some kind of structure to debates where it's not so combative and maybe more conversational? Like it's, it's, it's just some ground rules. Like I've watched some debates before. There's times where, like I, I appreciate like queer and radical, like, you know, reason sometimes it's like bombastic just going 100 miles an hour and instead of it being like you can win a debate without actually proving the point or doing anything correctly just by the way you are perceived mm-hmm. and like is there a way to create a structured debate where it's conversational and like it's seeking truth instead of seeking truth? You can. I mean, there's a current fashion for just having conversations and dialogues and you put two chairs up there, maybe the moderator at the table in between them and they just talk about things. And I'm okay with that. Although maybe it's just because I'm a philosopher, but I I usually am wishing there was more content and less just nice talk. Like I want to hear more arguments usually, but there's nothing wrong with that. And I've seen it done well. I've seen it done badly too. There's also a mania right now, you know, in academia for like panel discussions. It's like there's five or seven people up there and they usually only get to talk for two minutes. And like, those are kind of irritating. Like they don't, they don't allow for any in-depth discussion. Uh, I would gladly sit down and have an in-depth discussion in front of everybody with someone who knew what they were talking about halfway. But um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that format. It's a little less combative. So some people are going to like it less for that reason. And some people are going to like it more. Were those debates created in any way? In my debate with my atheist friend, um, we, we passed out ballots and had the students vote. They voted me the winner. Uh, so that was kind of fun. So you can do that if you want. You know, it's not a scientific poll. It's just something that adds a little more drama to it. I'm wondering if I know that you get the courtesy of your opponents to read their material before you go into the debate. You think feel like they've done the courtesy of actually uh, delving into the material that much? Michael Brown and I didn't do that, and it would have been a better debate if we did. Chris Date and I exchanged our opening statements. That I think made it better because then the rebuttals were a lot harder hitting. I could rebut what he actually said. It's very hard to come up with a detailed rebuttal on the fly for like ten points you just heard five minutes ago. That's the hardest thing about debating is just like thinking on your feet that fast. Um, in your preparation time, the weeks before. Well, you know, he hadn't really written anything on the topic. He had done some podcasts and I listened to those. 
and kind of got the general gist of his ideas, but he actually hadn't written anything. So that was a little bit of a disadvantage. I, I had written a lot. And so he made a lot of podcasts, so he had more to work with. Uh, my first question is, is there any uh, prospect of any future debates uh, with people that you could be dialoguing with? And two, I know you kind of had a semi-ongoing back and forth exchange with James White. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> he hates philosophers. He wants nothing to do with me. Probably not. I don't know why, but he can't stand philosophers. He thinks you should just be able to deduce from the Greek text everything that Calvinists say. And uh, you're, you're perverted if you just don't agree with that. So the fact that philosophers give arguments, just he doesn't like that. Um, so I don't expect him to, to want to debate. I would just solely because he has a lot of fans that would tune in and this is people I want to convince. There are a couple of people who are real scholars who are experts on incarnation who I would like to debate. I think they'd be good to debate. I've been in contact with one of them, but we'll see. I won't do any more this year. I'm, I'm inclined to debate incarnation a little bit more than Trinity because it's more foundational to evangelicals. How is it possible to be an expert on incarnation when it actually doesn't exist? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, because there's this council that supposedly is the acknowledged standard by the theologians, whether they in theory acknowledge councils or not. It's really that whole debate's a real mess, and it's it's quite hard to get your mind around it. And trying to make incarnation not be self-contradictory in the last 50 years a lot of philosophers and theologians have tried out all these fancy moves to make it come out not contradictory you can't just say well i think jesus is a god man or god and man like what do you mean by that like how could he be omniscient and not omniscient and they should have an answer to that other than it's just a mystery if it's a mystery, how come they know it? Mm-hmm. One of the problems that go off to the biblical word, it made it mean something I know. the opposite of what it actually meant. Right. The biblical word for incarnation. It occurs zero times. Mm-hmm. Well, zero times in every English version I've looked at, it's over 20. Yep. But they think John 1 and Philippians 2 are slam dunk, so... Yeah. I know it doesn't. Yeah. What's incarnation? Uh, it's that the eternal divine nature of the Son entered into a hype, mysterious hypostatic union with a complete human nature, body, and rational soul. Oh, so there's that Jesus existed before he was born? Mm, a little more than that. A little more than that. That's It's a little more specific than that. So I really enjoyed the debate with Chris Day. Uh-huh. Uh, far more than the Michael Brown yeah. for many reasons. But I just noticed in the debate you didn't really deal with the bird thing, and I just wondered what you thought about the bird. I did. I mean, I just said it's an invalid argument. Just the fact that protective bird imagery was used of God, uh, and then Jesus says what he says in Matthew, it just doesn't follow that he must be God. No. And when he shared his opening statement with me, I was so surprised. I, I whipped out some commentaries and study Bibles, and I couldn't find anybody actually saying that. So it's like a wild overreading.
When the Trinity's podcast returns, an audience member asks me what I think about online debating as opposed to face-to-face debating. I think it's fine. It's second best. The energy level is usually lower. It's maybe harder to make it watch worthy. There's nothing wrong with it. It's it's fine. Um, I've I've seen ones that are pretty well done, but um, the audience questions are more difficult to deal with because they're not just right there and can talk for themselves. Someone's someone's trying to field them online, and a lot of times it doesn't work very well. But it's nice that it's automatically recorded and put in the record. I don't know. I, I do prefer the face-to-face. I think it's better, but I don't have any terrible objection against those. One of the things you said, you might see more debates. There are people in this room that believe deeply in the subject material. They're pretty well educated on um, Who among us, and in what way, should we be acting to help make that happen? Who, who of us should be debating? If you want to see more debates happen, you can be the person that debates, or you can help organize it, find a sponsor church, help publicize it. And these are very important functions, and you can't really do a face-to-face debate without that. Uh, If those things don't happen, the debates don't happen. And then you can do online, that's fine. But again, it's not, I don't know, it's not as good. It's not as powerful. I prefer to watch the the face-to-face ones. Should you debate? I mean, if you've done your homework, yeah, why not? But you may take some lumps in the process. (laughs) The ones I've done so far, I've written my statements. And that's because I have so much to say, I cannot waste a single word just sort of fooling around like I'm doing now. And chatting like I have so much to say in only 20 minutes I you know I might in the future just do it a little more extemporaneously it's it's maybe a little bit easier to listen to maybe I could pull that off but I kind of prefer to have it really that way you say exactly what you meant to say if you just wing it you end up kind of messing it up and oh I shouldn't have said that you know especially when it's going to go into the permanent record have you had any and so, uh, since you've been teaching and you're a professor and uh, more in academia than most people, have uh, professionals ever confided in you personally about their uncertainty or fraternity or confided in? Yeah. Yeah, Chris Date and I have been in touch because we're working on a book that'll be a written version of the debate. And so we revised our opening statements and we showed those to each other. Then we revised our rebuttals and now we're doing the question and answer. I think it's going to be better. It's more thought through and, and harder hitting and still pretty short. So 
And, you know, I liked him. I liked him at least as much afterwards. I didn't think his arguments were powerful arguments, but I think he was trying to give good arguments and he had engaged the work that I had done. And he's, he's an honest guy. He's taken a lot of heat for his position on hell. You know, he wants to be an apologist and a professor, hopefully, but when you believe in annihilation and not eternal conscious torment, you pretty much shot yourself in the foot. And he did that because he has integrity and he was willing to pay the price for what he thought was correct. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to debate him because I thought he was that, I knew he was that kind of person by his behavior. So Michael Brown was surprised and irritated by all these non-Trinitarians that thought this debate was so interesting. And he wanted to get back to talking about culture war issues and why Trump should be voted for, even if he's a bad guy. And so he pretty much told everybody he was sick of this. He didn't want to get sucked into more Trinity things. And so, no, we haven't been in touch or anything. Uh, sorry, what was the second question? Uh, you seem to find it. Yeah, like professional. Oh, yeah. Like I can think of one fairly well-known theologian who writes books on other topics. He said to me once, uh, Trinity, like basically wants no part of it. Like no good can come of investigating this because if you say anything specific, someone else is going to call you a heretic and lots of people, they basically avoid the topic, especially if you work at a Christian college and you have kids and a wife and you went to grad school and you have student debt and that is like the last thing you're interested in. It's not cool. Now, if you come up with some really cockamamie speculation and you say, hey, what if the Trinity's this? That'll at least be tolerated and considered mildly interesting, if not cool. But right, you, you can pretty much get away with almost anything as long as you say that you're defending those things, even if it's really off base and not traditional nor biblical. But to be against it, I mean, you just can't be against it. And the, the smarter they are and the better informed they are, the, more, the harder they know it is. Like, some of them know that actually you can't deduce these from the Bible. But come on, we're all Christians, right? I mean, can't doctrines and traditions develop and change? And this is just what we've done. So what's the problem, really? Yeah, we're still Protestants. There's a lot of excuses to kind of not get into it. Right. The apologists think they have everything to win. It's going to build up their own prestige and their own awesomeness if they go refute all the terrible heretics about Trinity the Incarnation. Like the more serious professor types, most of them do not want to touch it. It's like no, no good can come of that. Either I won't do well in the debate or I'll come up with something that makes sense and everybody will tell me it's heresy and I'll lose my job. So... They're answerable to, to the Lord Jesus and to God for their behavior based on what they know. So I'm not here to cast stones at them and tell you how, what lousy people they are. But there is cowardice that comes into it. And um, there are people who know so much that they really shouldn't just sit there and nod their heads. One very admirable person, I don't know if you all have met him, he's at this conference, Bill Schlegel. He uh, was working in Israel at an extension of Master's University, teaching Hebrew and leading students uh, to, to discover the Holy Land, basically. And he, was, he lived in Israel for 30 years. That was his job. And then he finally started to study this stuff and just pretty quickly realized it's not in the Bible. And they, they basically forced him out, you know. But he wasn't going to just sit there and lie and fake it. He just went down in flames and lost that career. 
There need to be more conscientious objectors like that. The more churches we have, the more chance are, chances are that they'll, they'll be people who realize that, no, non-Trinitarians are not a bunch of cultists. Uh, actually, they're telling you biblical theology. <laughs> and, you know, what should a good Protestant do? If later tradition contradicts the Bible, then you got to go with the Bible, because that's the faith once delivered to the saints. So they are Protestants, you know, if you ask them, why not agree with the papacy? They will say, because that's not in the Bible. And it contradicts the idea of leadership that's in the Bible, right? Those are some topics you can argue, actually. Uh, earlier Unitarians, sometimes they would bring up transubstantiation or the papacy. It's like, look, these are just as much in the Bible as the Trinity and the Incarnation are in the Bible, which is to say they're not there at all. And what's there is inconsistent with these things. So... There are some arguments that need to happen among the scholars that are not yet happening. Would you agree being Catholic? Uh, yeah, but it it'd be a different debate because we wouldn't have as much in common as a Protestant. When I debate a Protestant, in theory, they agree with everything in the Bible. A Catholic does not need to do that. Some of them claim that they can do that and also believe church tradition, but some of the better educated scholars who are Catholics. They will say, yeah, actually, the Trinity is not in the Bible. The Incarnation is not in the Bible. These are later ideas. But Mother Church, who gave us the Bible, has the same amount of authority to tell us later on that about the Immaculate Conception and the Blessed Assumption of the Virgin and transubstantiation and all that jazz. So you have to have an argument about the authority of the Roman bishop. Is it really consistent with the Bible and with history? Or was there later propaganda about how this went down? I mean, you can just observe that there are no early popes. And then there are the Bishop of Rome starts to say that he's one of the most important bishops because he's in one of the biggest, baddest cities. But so does the guy in Alexandria and the guy in Antioch, etc. So you, you can watch it evolve over time. Peter was not the first pope. That's like saying Thomas Jefferson was the first guy that ran an internet website. Yeah, it just didn't. Didn't exist then. Do you see a, uh, anything in common with the Protestant arguments against transubstantiation and our arguments against the Trinity? Yes. Do you all know what transubstantiation is? <laughs> Have you seen the little wafer that Catholics use instead of a piece of bread? Okay, they claim that is Jesus' entire body. Literally. And it has the observable properties of a little wafer made of wheat, but is really a whole man's body. And the little drink of wine is Jesus's blood, even though it tastes like wine. And they claim that the underlying reality has been switched whenever the priest says, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. The, the underlying substance has been switched, so now it's really flesh and blood, but the observable properties have remained the same. And so they literally think they're eating Jesus. I've had conversations with my students about this. It's a little creepy, you know? Dude thinks he eats Jesus every time he goes to Mass. But look, uh, God gave us eyes and hands and taste buds, and this is how we figure out what objects are, right? This is not an apple. I know it's not an apple. It's the wrong shape. It doesn't taste right. It doesn't crunch right. It's, this is not an apple, right? So, okay, but that's not a guy's body that you just put in your mouth. So, insofar as people are offering contradictions and saying that they're true, or they're offering apparent contradictions, that goes against our truth-detecting powers 
not of sight and touch and taste, but of just reasoning about what's consistent and what's inconsistent with itself. It's authority against your own reason, right? You know that's not blood. You know that's not flesh. But they're like, that's what you will think. And like you're like, oh, okay, I guess. There's a famous saying by uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, something like, uh, if Mother Church tells me black is white and white is black, then I will just believe that because that's what Mother Church tells me. It's like, that is not how you're supposed to use your mind, my friend. God gave you that to use and not to step on. Thank you so much. And we can talk more maybe afterwards, but I should let you go now. This week's thinking music has been the track Recreation by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.